are in Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verses 15, sorry, 12, rather, to 26. I think I gave 25 to the the media team. Uh, I apologize for that. It's up to 26. Um, But Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 26. And the word of God reads, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat from you, well, eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And when they came to Jerusalem, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we again uh, thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for this ministry. We thank you for the means of being able to worship you in the fellowship of believers. We thank you for the gospel of Mark. And once again, we ask for wisdom, for clear sight through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand the significance of this passage and what it means to us today. Lord, we pray that we would be able to experience the transformative power of your word. Lord, I pray that I would be able to preach with both power but with also gentleness. I pray that your word would cut us to the heart, but also heal us at the same time. We pray to be challenged and also transformed. And so, Lord, may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, if you recall, uh, Jesus made his entrance into Jerusalem uh, on a donkey. And this Entrance on a donkey fulfilled uh, an Old Testament prophecy about how the coming Messiah would enter into Jerusalem. 
Uh, thousands of pilgrims in last week's passage uh, were giving Jesus the red carpet treatment. They were taking off their jackets and their cloaks and laying it on the filthy road to Jerusalem. Uh, they, they had giant palm leaves and they were waving it in celebration because they anticipated and were waiting for the Messiah. Except their anticipation and the expectation of the Messiah, as we saw in the last few weeks, was that the Messiah would be someone that would liberate them from Rome, when in actual fact, Jesus came not to liberate Israel from Rome, but to save humanity from the wrath of God himself. And so when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and the crowds didn't see Jesus rallying up an army or giving like a political speech or trying to kickstart a rebellion to overthrow the Roman authorities, it seems like they disappeared and they dispersed very quickly. And then the passage concluded with Jesus entering the temple, looking around, and then going back to Bethany from where he came. Now, the structure of today's passage is quite interesting. Uh, It's very unique because Mark begins and ends today's passage with this encounter that Jesus has with a tree, a fig tree. And sandwiched in the middle of these two encounters that Jesus has with this same tree is this encounter or incident that takes place in the temple at Jerusalem. And we'll find that Mark is very deliberate in structuring this sandwich structure uh, to this passage because the encounter that Jesus has with the fig tree, uh, it's more than just Jesus encountering a tree. It's actually a parable that Jesus acts out. You know, if you read through the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus spoke often in parables. It was a teaching method that he used. But today's passage with the fig tree isn't so much a spoken parable, but a parable acted out. And I want us to bear that in mind as we unpackage and flesh out today's passage. Now, verse 12 tells us that today's passage begins the day after the events from last week's passage. And today we're introduced to Jesus who is very hungry. Uh, It says he's on an empty stomach, he's hungry. And so when he leaves Bethany, verses 13 and 14 says, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, so covered in leaves, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it and found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs, he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus is hungry, comes to this tree, which is in full bloom, the leaves, it's covered in leaves from top to bottom. But because it wasn't the season yet for figs, uh, Jesus couldn't eat anything from this tree. It wasn't the season where figs would just be hanging. I didn't know what a fig was before I got married. But now I, I know after I got married, I used to read about it. But it wasn't the time of the year for figs to hang off the tree, ready to pluck. My wife loves figs. I'm not a big fan of them, but... But it was the time of season where you could, like, it wasn't the time of season where you could pluck and just, like, cut it open and start eating. And so Jesus, in response to this, sees that there's no figs, and he curses the tree. And I used to read this, and I was like, it's a bit of an overreaction, isn't it? Like, do you get angry at 
an inanimate object, like a tree. Like, who gets angry at a tree or a plant? Like, how dare you? Um, but that's what happens. And the hint to understanding why Jesus curses this tree, like, what happens is that it's not so much that there weren't figs that he could eat. Um, it wasn't the season to pluck a ripe fig. And so it does seem a bit unreasonable. But what Mark is telling us about this account is that Jesus not only didn't find figs to eat, like ripe figs to eat, uh, there was nothing. Because even if it's not the season for eating figs and for figs to be plucked and you know consumed, there should still at least be the evidence of figs that are going to come. Little bulbs, like if you see like, any fruit tree, you'll see that even if it's not in season, you'll see these little bulbs. And in the case of a fig tree, it would have been like a dark, little green, hard bulb that should have been littered all around the tree. But Jesus doesn't find anything. No figs, not even the hint that there's going to be figs that will eventually ripen when the season comes. There's a ton of leaves, but no evidence of fruit. And so Jesus curses the tree, and he does it deliberately in the presence of the twelve apostles. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Why does he do this? We'll find out later in the passage. But after this encounter with the fig tree, um, Jesus then heads back to Jerusalem, and he goes straight to the temple. Uh, now remember last week, Jesus entered the temple as well, at night. And he looked around, he walked Looked around. Mark doesn't tell us what he saw, but he looked around, saw something, and then he went back to Bethany. Now, based on what he saw in last week's passage, Jesus goes straight to the temple. He looks around, but this time he springs into action. The passage says that he entered the temple, and what does he do? It says he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you would have seen this scene acted out in movies and TV shows about you know, the ministry of Jesus. And depending on how good the actor was and how creative he got with how angry he wanted to portray Jesus. You probably saw Jesus like pick up a whip and start whipping people and like overturning everything, opening cages and birds flying, like, absolute chaos. Um, that's not exactly what's happening here. Like, because in the, in the TV shows, he just, it just looks like he's on a rampage to attack anyone in his sights. But what's happening in today's passage, there is a reason why Jesus is angry, a very specific reason. Jesus' anger is directed at a particular group of people because of what he's seeing take place in the temple. You see, back in the day, the temple in Jerusalem, it was a place where animal sacrifices were made. You know, whether it's for a sin offering, whether it's to, you know, the, uh, an offering of thanksgiving, that's where sacrifices were made. And they'd bring these animals, and these animals, there was a criteria. There could not be any blemish, any imperfection on the animal, any marking that like kind of made any like made the animal not perfect, like visually and aesthetically. 
And so for the pilgrims, remember, the Passover festival was taking place, and pilgrims from all over the land were coming to Jerusalem to worship God and hopefully sacrifice at the temple. And if you're going to travel a long distance like that, if you brought an animal from home without blemish, no markings, let's say that you had a sheep, pure white, not a blemish on its, on, on its fleece. If you travel a long distance like that, um, by the time you get to Jerusalem, your animal would be blemished. It was just an inevitability. And so what the Jews or Jewish leaders did was that they allowed for a marketplace to be set up within the temple. Now, this in itself, like setting up a marketplace to sell animals, this in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. Because logistically, the only way you could successfully bring an animal to sacrifice at the temple that would pass the inspection criteria from the priest was by purchasing it in Jerusalem. But the problem was actually threefold. First, with this marketplace, a lot of the times the people that sold the animals were con artists. They actually sold often animals that had hidden blemishes and they'd sell it at jacked up prices, an exorbitant fee, because they knew that these people had nowhere else to turn to to purchase an animal. So they'd jack up the prices, it'd have a hidden blemish probably a lot of the times. And so the unknowing buyer would be overcharged take the animal and be conned because they would take the animal to the priest, the priest would inspect it and find a blemish on it and say to them, this is no good, we can't accept this. Second problem, when you came to a foreign land, or if you came from a foreign land rather, you have the issue of currency. Different areas, different countries, you different currencies. And so when you came to this marketplace in Jerusalem, you had to use the currency that was native to Jerusalem. And so you had not only people selling animals, you had a currency exchange. This existed back then as well. And kind of like the currency exchanges that you have at the airports as well, these guys were intent on ripping people off. Uh, they, they, they made so much money off pilgrims during festivals like this. And so effectively, pilgrims that came to Jerusalem from other parts of the land, they were getting ripped off twice. Once by exchanging their currency and twice by the people selling the animals. The third thing, the third problem, and this probably was what topped it off for Jesus, it was the location of where this marketplace existed. Because it existed in the outer courts of the Jerusalem temple. And the way the temples were set up, again, I encourage you to look at the colorful maps in your Bible. Often they'll give you like a, like a, a model scale of what Jerusalem looked like, Jerusalem temple looked like. But what happened in this temple? It was divided up into different courtyards, you know, and on the outermost, you know, on the outskirts of the Jerusalem temple, there was an outer courtyard. It was like the furthest away from the Holy of Holies where, you know, God's presence symbolically existed, on the outskirts of the temple. This was where Gentiles, non-Jewish people, this was where they were restricted to worshipping God. They, couldn't, they weren't allowed to go any closer to the center of the temple. They were stuck on the outside. 
And yet, despite this, Gentile worshippers showed up to worship God even in the outer courts. This was the place that was designated for them to worship and to pray. But what Jesus saw in last week's passage was that when he went into the temple, he would have seen in the outer courts absolute chaos. The noise level it would have been like Flemington markets. I haven't been to Flemington markets in a while, but when I went as a kid, it was incredibly noisy. Um, the guys that sell the fruits that like yell out the prices, very noisy. But it would have been like a sea of people, an entire marketplace of people yelling, screaming. And this infuriated Jesus. Because aside from all the rip-off merchants, the currency exchange, and the people selling the animals, think about this for a moment. The outer courts of the temple, the place designated for non-Jewish worshippers to worship, to pray, the Jews had turned their place of worship into a circus. If, you were, you know, if we were to put it into our context, our service starts at 1.30. I think some of us need a reminding about that. We start at 1.30. It would be the equivalent if we all came in to worship at 1.30 and then the mother church decides to hold a bake sale in here and a garage sale in here and start serving lunch in here. Start playing a movie while we're trying to worship. It would have been insulting. And so you can imagine the fury of Jesus when he sees Gentile worshippers trying to worship God. Like a guy with his eyes closed praying, Lord, forgive my sins. And then you hear a guy on the left, one dollar, two dollar, you know, perfect non-blemished sheep, a hundred dollars. This infuriated Jesus. And so he says, is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's how we know he's talking about the Gentiles. All nations, not just the Jews, but for people that are not Jewish, non-Jewish, people outside of Israel. It's a place of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus does not mince his words. He doesn't hold back. Now, at this point, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders and the scribes, if they had any sense of decency, when Jesus said this, they should have put their hands up and said, you know what, you're right. We dropped the ball on this one. Sorry, guys. Everyone, everyone let's take this outside. This is the only honest reaction that they should have had. But verse 18 says, the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And they began to seek a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowds were astonished at his teaching. It's interesting that, like, I know we paint the Jewish leaders in a bad light. I find the crowd a bit funny as well. And I think that, that, that just speaks for humanity in general. Have you ever been on a bus and, like, some, like, guy becomes very aggressive and everyone's like, you know, I was on a bus once and there was a really racist guy hurling racial insults at someone that was, you know, not from this country. And everyone was like really quiet. No one said a word. Everyone's like just pretending like nothing's going on here. Until one person stood up and told the guy to shut up. And suddenly everyone becomes brave like, yeah, you be quiet, you get off the bus. And that's kind of what's happening here. Because notice no one said anything. 
until Jesus said something. It says the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So it's like not until Jesus said it, when Jesus says, this is meant to be a place of prayer, that's when the crowds are like, yeah, that's right, yeah. And then the Jewish leaders became afraid. Now, Mark then takes us back to that fig tree that we saw in the first half of the passage, verses 20 to 21. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, remember what I said earlier. This encounter with a fig tree, the withering of the fig tree, it isn't because Jesus was disappointed that he couldn't eat figs. It wasn't like, I'm disappointed in you, fig tree. It was a parable. Jesus didn't curse the tree because he was the creator God that wanted to eat a fig and then, because there were no figs, decided to punish the tree. Instead, it is a parable. A parable of what? Well, the fig, or the fig tree rather, uh, it was known by God's people throughout Scripture as a symbol. It was a symbol of Israel and God's people. If you read Joel 1.7 or Hosea 9.10, you'll see passages like those that use the symbol of a fig tree to illustrate Israel and the things that are going to happen to Israel. And this is why I think Mark deliberately chose to sandwich the cleansing of the temple, Jesus going ballistic inside the temple, in between these two encounters with this same fig tree. Because the fig tree illustrated the hypocrisy of Israel and their religious system. Just as we saw that the fig tree had a ton of leaves, like on the outside, it was green. Just as we saw that on the outside, the fig tree looked like a fig tree. Israel, on the outside, looked like a very re religious society. They had all the festivals, they had the temple, they had the animal sacrifices, they had denominations within Judaism that were just committed to keeping the law. But the reality was that they were plagued by spiritual barrenness. They might have looked religious, but the purpose of this parable was to show that they had no real fruit. Not even unripe fruit. Not even the bulbs or the hints that there are going to be fruit when the season comes. There was nothing. It just looked like a tree on the outside, but there was nothing of substance on the inside. And so in one sense, Jesus did curse the fig tree and cause it to wither. But in another sense, if we understand that this tree represents humanity and God's people, then the death that's brought about by Christ, it's not so much that Jesus is bringing death about, but he's exposing the spiritual death that already exists on the inside. Because for all the external religiosity that a person might be able to demonstrate, if there is no true fruit of the Spirit, then it's not so much that God brings about death, but God exposes spiritual death. And the gospel and God's word teaches us that this state of spiritual death 
is where all people begin. This is the default for anyone that is born of Adam. Before Christ and outside of Christ, we're kind of like this fig tree. We might look alive on the outside. We might be physically alive, but spiritually inside, we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And if we go back to the parable of the fig tree, if you look at the fig tree, the answer for the fig tree wasn't to try and conjure up energy and try to produce buds of fruit. was impossible because this tree was dead on the inside. The only means of true life can't come from the tree. And for humanity, the only means of true spiritual life can't come from us. The only place it can come from, according to God's word, is from the author of life himself, God. And that's what Jesus elaborates at the end of today's passage. Verse 22, he says to them, like Jesus says, look, the fig tree's withered. And Jesus doesn't say, I know, pretty cool, huh? No, he doesn't. He doesn't even acknowledge the fig tree. He says, have faith. Faith in what? Have faith in God. Your only hope isn't to conjure up something by your own strength, isn't to create an external aura of religiosity on the outside. Your only hope is to have faith and trust in God. He then concludes the passage in verses 23 to 25 by saying, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he has said will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven will forgive you your trespasses. Now, this sounds like a cool gospel promise, uh, but it is a promise that's so often taken out of its context. Um, interestingly, in the last few decades, it's been taken out of its context. Um, and I've explained to you guys all multiple times the dangers of taking passages out of its context because you end up making it mean something that God didn't intend it to mean. And so, full life, I want to make it clear to you that this passage about praying with faith, that God will give you anything if you pray by faith, it is not a promise that God will give you anything that your heart wants if you pray hard enough or if you believe hard enough. This isn't a promise that if you pray hard enough, you're going to get a six-figure job, seven-bedroom mansion, Lamborghini, and a model husband or a wife. This isn't what this passage is promising. You have to remember the context. In order to understand the context of this promise, you have to understand what happened in the preceding verses. You have to remember the parable of the fig tree. You have to remember that Jesus, in the broader context of Mark's gospel, remember where Jesus is on the timeline of his ministry. He's in his final days 
of his rescue mission to save humanity from the wrath of God, Christ only days away is going to go to the cross and be crushed under the full force of God's wrath as he hangs on the cross to free us and, you know, from spiritual bondage and from sin. The last thing that Jesus is thinking about is your Lamborghini. The context of this promise about praying with faith is about spiritual life. It's about going from spiritual death to spiritual life and the production of spiritual fruit. That's the context. That's why the the parable of the fig tree is sandwiched together with what happens at the temple and with the instructions that Jesus gives at the end. When it comes to matters of faith, this passage is a promise that God will honor our prayer in faith and about faith. And it's also a call to ensure that you do nothing to hinder that faith. Let me give you an example to to kind of flesh this out a bit more. If you want to know Christ, let's say that you don't know Christ, you want to know, you genuinely want to know him. You want to learn about him. You want to understand who God is. This passage is a promise that if you cry out to God and say, I want to know you. I want to receive Christ. I want to know who he is. I want to know what he's done for me. This passage is a promise that if you press on in prayer, God will answer that. If you're struggling with sin and you have habitual sin in your life that you can't seem to be able to get victory over, no matter how many times you try and you try to stop doing something, it just keeps coming back to haunt you. This passage is a promise that if you press on in prayer, you press on in faith and say to God, give me the Spirit's power so that I can get victory over this, and you press on. This passage is a promise that God will honor that prayer. While we're on the topic of fruit, when it comes to the fruits of the Spirit, you know, we, we, some of us might be able to identify, I'm a, I'm a kind person. But then maybe you look at it and you be like, you know what, I, uh, I'm a kind person, but I struggle with self-control. Like if I, if I start surfing through YouTube shorts or TikTok, it's just I can't exercise self-control to just put my phone down. Or maybe I can exercise that, but you know what, I, I've got a short fuse. I get frustrated easily. I'm not a kind person. This passage is a promise that if you pray to God and press on in prayer, the Lord will help you with that. Let's say that you're struggling to love someone, like in an agape love kind of way, not an eros romantic kind of way, but let's say that you're struggling to love someone or you're struggling to experience joy in your life. Again, pray. And according to this gospel promise, God will honor that prayer and help you. Now, that isn't to say that we can't pray for our financial circumstances. I'm not saying that. If you're struggling with your finances, absolutely pray about that. Pray about physical well-being. But this passage, I want to be clear. The context of it, it's about matters of faith. Not about God making you rich if you pray hard enough. 
It's not about God giving you your dream car, your dream house, your dream husband or wife. It's about faith. It's about spiritual life and spiritual fruit. And you know what? In all my years of ministry, I've seen God answer a lot of different prayers. I've seen God answer prayers for me in regards to money. Uh, I've seen God answer prayers for me in terms of like doors I need opened that I can't open, but he opens it for me. But I have to say, out of everything that I've heard or seen God answer, I think the greatest response, the greatest miracle I've seen God perform is when he changes people. That might not sound that amazing to you, but as you get older, you know, my wife always says this. She says, and I'm sure you've said it at some stage or heard someone say it. It's that saying that people don't change. People don't change. It's impossible for a person. That's just how he or she is. They're they're never going to change. You know, when I was younger, I knew a girl who found out her boyfriend was cheating on her. Not just cheating on her, cheating on her with multiple other women, all from different suburbs. Some of these girls even had the same name. So if you look through his phone, you'd see like a love heart and then be like Jennifer from Blacktown, Jennifer from Auburn. And then one day this got exposed. She found out and she was heartbroken. So I never want to see you again. But she was still in love with him. And he apologized, please, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And she started to like, oh, maybe I should take, maybe, maybe he has changed. Maybe I'll give him a second chance. But what, what did her friends, what do you think her friends said to her? What's that saying about cheaters? Once a cheater, always a cheater. Why? Because people don't change. Right? And that's true. People don't change. Except in the context of the gospel. Because God changes people. That's the mechanics of the gospel. He's designed salvation in a way that a man is forever changed and never the same again. And that's how today's passage ends. With this precious Precious promise from the Christ about prayer. Now, one application point. I'll keep this short. The application point or observation. It's to pray. For you to pray, for me to pray. To be able to purge, remove, cut out religious hypocrisy. You know, I I always think long and hard about application when it comes to preparation. I think that's the longest, the part of my sermon that I spend the longest time. Uh, And the reason I take so long with this part is because um, I don't I don't like conflict. Um, I don't like inflicting pain or hurting people's feelings. I don't like making people feel bad about themselves. I, I genuinely love and care, care for you guys. I, I pray for you guys a lot. And so I hate the idea of my words hurting people's feelings. I, I'm not a bully. I'm, I'm not. I, I was when I was in high school, but I'm not a bully now. 
And I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. But the dilemma of any preacher that loves his congregation is that sometimes you just have to allow God's word to speak for itself, even if it does hurt people. God hates religious hypocrisy, and religious hypocrisy today comes in many forms. There was a famous Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McChain, from the 1800s. He, he, he said once, and I quote, my people's greatest need, his congregation, my people's greatest need, not just his congregation, his family as well, their greatest need is my personal holiness. He was talking about not just his holiness, but about his worship of God. His intimacy with God. He says, everyone around me, their greatest need of me is my relationship with God. And you know what? This isn't just for preachers. I served in youth ministry for 10 years. It was 10 years. I lost count. And I have to say, you know, when I look at GEDA or HMX, if you're a youth teacher or a Sunday school teacher, you could be present every week. You could show up for everything. You could have a great relationship with the kids. You could be known as the most committed teacher ever in the history of JIDA, HMX, or primary school ministry, or Kids Connect ministry. But the greatest need of your students is your worship and your intimacy with God. If you have a heart where you don't see the, you know, the importance of Sabbath Sunday worship, if you allow menial things to compromise your worship of God, if you see Sunday worship as something that's optional or menial, then the reality is, if we go back to the parable of the fig tree, it's nothing more than just having the appearance of religion on the outside with no true spiritual life on the inside. And I don't care how committed you are, if that's the case, you have no fruit to offer anyone. The appearance of religion on the outside, yet no true spiritual life on the inside, in the, like, not just, you know, I keep using teachers as an example, but I do it because I was in youth ministry for 10 years. I've just seen so many teachers come in, in, in and out of ministries that I've served in where they showed up but they had no eternal impact on the students' lives. They became a great friend. They became the cool teacher. But they were never able to impart anything of eternal value onto their students because they had no spiritual life, because there was no worship in their life. And you know what? I'm not exempt. Like I don't want to just sound like I'm picking on teachers. This goes for everything. Husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, pastors, vision team members. Life begets life. And if I'm to stand in the pulpit every week, as we go through Mark's gospel, I'm recognizing more and more that my greatest 
need in fulfilling the office and title of a pastor and a preacher isn't so much the sermon, but it's to do everything within my power to ensure that my worship of God is never, ever compromised. Now, the reality is that sometimes we will drift. That's just just the way it is. We're descendants of Adam, we're of the flesh, we have sinful hearts. But I encourage you to be vigilant against drifting. For so many of us, the problem isn't drifting, it's that we're okay with drifting. We're not vigilant against drifting. We see our hearts swaying and it doesn't concern us. Be vigilant against this. Be violent against your heart drifting. And the silver lining is this incredible promise that Jesus gives us about praying for matters of faith. Praying with faith about matters of faith. And I'll conclude my sermon by reading this promise out again. And in this moment, I want everyone to close their eyes. I can see a few people have their eyes closed already. I don't know if you anticipated this, but we'll close our eyes. And I just want you to close your eyes and heed the words of Jesus again as I read this. And remember that this is God's living word to his people. This is his promise to his people for all time, especially when you're drifting. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven, may it forgive you your trespasses. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the promise that you give us in this passage when it comes to praying about matters of faith. Lord, I pray for the members of FLM and myself as well, that we would be vigilant against a drifting heart that we will be quick to diagnose when our faith starts to waver, or we will be quick to recognize where faith is non-existent. And so, Lord, in doing so, we pray to be a people that when we see this, we understand that our only hope is to cling to this promise that you give us in Scripture, that if we call upon the name of the Lord, we will be saved. If we call out for salvation, you will grant uh, grant it to us. If we call out to know the Christ, you will reveal him to us. If we call to be sanctified and transformed by the Holy Spirit, that you won't withhold the great helper, but you will bestow his power upon us, lavishing it in abundance. And so, Lord, I pray, as I prayed at the beginning of this sermon, that your word would cut us to the heart, but at the same time, heal us.
not only to challenge us, but to transform us. And we ask this all in the name of King Jesus. Amen.